Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Michał Rozwodowski, and welcome to the show. Well, it definitely feels like a series of those weeks where decades happen when looking at the UK right now. There's uh, so much to say. Corbyn lost but really won the election. Labour's vote share is up by the most since the historic 1945 election. Corbyn looks more like the prime minister in waiting than leader of the opposition. Anyhow, I won't say much more, but uh, leave it to this week's two fabulous guests to explain what happened in the UK election on June 8th, what led up to it, and where things are going next. My first guest is Beth Foster Ogg. Beth is an activist with Momentum, the group created to support Jeremy Corbyn's first leadership bid, and now a major force both within and outside the Labour Party. Beth is currently the membership coordinator, and she spoke with me about Momentum's role in the election campaign and where it is headed next. My second guest is Nick Snitsek. Nick is the author of Platform Capitalism, and along with Alex Williams, his other book, Inventing the Future, uh, an influential one, and one that he spoke about on this podcast last year. He is currently a lecturer in the International Politics Department at the City University London, and he's one of a number of intellectuals who have supported the rise of Corbynism. And he's a Canadian expat in the UK. But uh, first up, my conversation with Momentum is Beth Foster Ogg. I mean, so first of all, congratulations on this historic result. I mean, to you and uh, 13 million other Labour voters and and supporters. Um, I I mean, I know Labour didn't win this election, but it definitely beat all expectations. It uh, grew its vote share between elections the most since at least time. All these things that we've heard since. And and, I mean, it it really does look like a government in waiting more than an opposition right now. Um, But maybe you could begin by briefly telling our listeners... Uh, who might not be that familiar with Momentum, what, what the organization is about, um, where it came from, and, and, and what its role has been. Yeah, sure. So um, Momentum is a grassroots network. We have about 24,000 members, um, a couple of hundred thousand supporters, and 150 local groups across the country. We were born out of Jeremy Corbyn's first leadership election. So um, basically, Jeremy got on the ballot paper for the Labour leadership election. And we were all loads of people across the country, loads of young people who had never been involved in politics before, were massively inspired by Jeremy, um, the things he was talking about and uh, his his way of doing politics. Because, um, you know, Jeremy presented a very kind of like socialist left wing agenda. on which he wanted to take the Labour Party forward, uh, was talking a lot about a kind of like more positive, kind politics, because as you know, we all know politics can be quite brutal and horrible, and uh, a much more democratic Labour Party that really represented its members, and that was something that was really inspiring. And then nobody thought that Jeremy Corbyn was going to win the leadership election, and then suddenly, you know, there was a massive groundswell of support, and he won, and it was it was just amazing. And we had this situation where we had. The Labour Party had gained hundreds of thousands of new members and lots of people were really excited. Um, and it was just after the 2015 uh, general election where the Conservatives won and we 
were like, we need to do something with energy and enthusiasm. And so Momentum was born out of that and we kind of became an, an organisation to be that grassroots voice and energy um, and to be doing kind of social justice campaigns and movements and working within the Labour Party uh, to kind of continue that enthusiasm that Jeremy had brought to politics. Um, and two years on, we have, yeah, massively expanded and grown and there's still a lot of energy and lots yeah. going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, I see that. And especially in the context where, um, where I mean, Corbyn's candidacy barely, barely sneaked onto the ballot paper in the first place and, and faced, you know, intense opposition from various established sectors of the Labour Party. I'm assuming that added additional impetus that there wasn't that much of an institutional home kind of for yeah, Corbyn yeah, supporters. Um, so what is Momentum's sort of, you know, formal, not so formal relationship to the Labour Party and how has it involved since um, Corbyn's first leadership campaign? Like, you know, do Momentum members have to be Labour Party members? Vice versa, is there, how, how formalized is it? How, what, what do the links look like? Um, so we're an unaffiliated organisation, but we completely support the aims and values of the Labour Party and obviously uh, dedicated to its electoral success. Um, all our members have to be Labour Party members because so much of our energy and our work is, is focused on getting people involved in the Labour Party. So, for example, during the general election campaign, all our activities were focusing on on sending people and getting people to Labour Party activity and just making the Labour Party activity more inclusive and, and better and, and getting our people there. Um, and we uh, work a lot outside the Labour Party on things within communities, on, on you know, um, supporting food banks and local campaigns on housing and all kinds of different things. But also a lot of our work is about uh, getting new people into the Labour Party getting all our new members active and involved um, in the democratic processes um, and being, you know, a positive influence on the culture and politics within the party. Um, and we have uh, very good relationships with lots of um, MPs and activists across, across the country uh, who we support and provide a kind of grassroots base for and campaigning voice for. Right. And, and what are some of the... Are there particular themes or political ideas that you try to organize around? I mean, I, I assume these can change. I know you've had these sort of conferences or festivals kind of, of ideas that were, that, you know, look quite inspiring from the outside where you brought a lot of speakers and regular people together and and had sort of more of a policy or political kind of development focus. Um, yeah. Are there particular things there? Yeah, so I think the thing you're referencing it was the World Transformed, which was a festival yes. we put on. Um, as a kind of fringe festival to the Labour Party conference, uh, because the Labour Party conference, which is where major decisions about the party's future and its policies and structure are made, um, can be quite a, is, you know, it's very serious and can be quite a sterile event. Um, and we put on this incredible festival alongside um, the conference, which allowed people and members to get involved in those conversations and be hearing from really interesting people and debating the stuff that was going on in conference and made it much more accessible um, and allowed loads of different people to get involved. Um, so, you know, we are, I don't, if you've seen Labour's manifesto, a lot of the, the policies within that uh, are things that Momentum, you know, uh, 
recently, you know, we fully support the entire manifesto. It's an incredible manifesto with um, with lots of policies that all transform people's lives. Uh, a lot of the work we do is about making the Labour Party more democratic and representative um, and open in its processes of um, selecting candidates uh, for MPs and councillors um, and kind of unrepresented members, having much more open meetings, much more inclusive. Um, and a lot of our work is also about kind of modernising the party. So uh, putting in place kind of digital tools which allow people to be involved in on many different levels and in many different ways and people who wouldn't be able to attend those meetings to be involved um, and to know where their help is most needed during general election time and all those kind of things. So a lot of our work is kind of bringing in new digital initiatives that make it easier to access and get involved in the Labour Party. How do you see sort of the political function of some of these things? Like, it, it, I assume it goes beyond just, and I think you started to, to talk about it, I think it goes beyond just saying, oh, you know, this is a cool tool, but it's really about sort of transforming transforming the, the culture of the party. I don't know if you could just say a bit more about how the yeah. two, how the sort of tactics and the sort of long-run goals relate. Yeah, so, I mean, um, we use all these tools like social media and um, texting and uh, a website called My Nearest Marginal, which allow people to find out where they're, where the place closest to them which needed the most help was during the general election, basically to um, kind of, to get the maximum amount of people involved in the party. So it's historically the Labour Party, um, you know, it was born out of kind of grassroots of the trade union movement and of of grassroots movements. And um, we need to ensure that that kind of inclusive uh, kind of, People powered is kind of aspect of the party is is the main driving force. So these tools that we and tactics we use basically allow the most amount of people to get involved and stay involved and have a positive experience and a positive journey with the Labour Party um, and feel most valued and, and useful because we are a mass we have a mass membership. The Labour Party has I think nearly eight hundred thousand members um, and we basically need to make sure that they're being respected and used and um, and developed uh, in the best possible way. So that's why Momentum was kind of like giving lots of information to people during the le- general election about how they could get involved, offering training so that people, when they went door knocking, knew how to have persuasive conversations that could be most effective. Um, so we kind of like are just supporting the lay party's work and maximizing it basically. Yeah. And, and maybe we can get into the nuts and bolts um of the last of the election campaign a little bit too. So what what did that what did that all look like uh, very concretely in terms of the campaign? I, I mean, you mentioned the the find your nearest the your nearest marginal tool. Um, it seems yeah, that that was yeah. a really big f- like in general. It seems like marginal constituencies where you know I, I think the main campaign had given up on you know s- seeing the support numbers at the start. Kind of um, that those seem to be a focus and that you really helped. To turn, you know, to turn a lot of these seats that uh, that would have been very close. Yeah. So I mean, we started 26 points down in the polls. So naturally, the Labour Party took a very defensive strategy mm-hmm. of, you know, putting a lot of resources in defending seats. Um, and as as the, the polls started to turn, um, you know, we, we continued that defensive strategy. So the role momentum played really was um, choosing some of those more offensive seats. So like Sheffield and Battersea, 
where the Tories had large-ish majorities of, you know, Battersea had a majority of 9,000 people, but we knew that we had a brilliant candidate um, in Battersea. We had a, an incredible groundswell of support with loads of young people and people that were new to the party getting involved. So we basically gave people the tools to run really effective grassroots local campaigns so that they could um, have the same kind of impact that and the same support that other seats that were more defensive could have. So you know, we, whether that was, you know, we did that in, in several different ways. Um, one of the ways was Manius Marshall, which allowed people to just type in their postcode uh, and look up where where was closest to them that needed the most support. And we had a range of, of defensive and offensive seats on there so people could go and support places like Bastille, which we swung massively and won, um, and now have an, an incredible Labour MP in Battersea and then we had a lot of communications with our members and supporters using different methods so we were emailing phoning and texting all our members with where they could be most useful different ways they could get involved uh, and giving responses so we gave tailored um, one-to-one you know like with the texting we could respond and say and answer people's questions and give them support to kind of maximize uh, the amount of people going out and then we also offered um, training program about how to have most persuasive conversations on the doorstep, um, which meant that uh, people could be most persuasive and most effective on the doorstep. So, I mean, a lot of activists don't really a bit scared of going door knocking because it is a bit of a strange thing to do to go and knock on a random person's door and, and try and have a conversation with them. So we were, we did a training which which kind of taught people about how to talk about the key policy areas, how to answer very difficult questions that come up repeatedly, um, and how to just have have different mechanisms of having very persuasive conversations. So we provided that training for over 3,000 activists who could then go out into these key marginals like Bastion and Sheffield that we won by complete surprise um, to some people and um, and, and allow those, those activists to have the biggest impact. So we had a kind of, yeah, it was basically about maximising the amount of people on the ground. We had over 10,000 activists on the ground um, at knocking on mill- millions of doors i mean on, on polling day there were some places where which had a thousand like you know small constituencies who had a thousand people turn up so it's an incredible ground operation that we helped uh like get people to and, and maximize which i think was our the real way that we contributed yeah and i mean with that number of people you can literally knock on every door and i think that's something that i read that was yeah that was interesting and i know that's interesting and different and different than the way that we um that our social democratic party still mostly does things here is that you sort of went beyond this model of talking to supporters or at least talking to supporters first you know either the not just yeah. the hard supporters but the sort of you know the ones twos and threes say on a on a five point scale but actually going out and talking to to everyone um and it seems yeah, that this has yeah, a sort yeah. of you know political angle to this too and, and it says something about you know this potential for a sort of mass left politics that um, that yeah. I think has been kind of the belief in that has been kind of lost. Definitely, I think like we we you know normally you could you only have capacity to knock on your supporters' doors and just reaffirm their support and get them on polling day, but um, we because we had such a massive amount of people on the doorstep, we were able to knock on everyone's doors. And there were some places where they literally just reprinted the electoral register and knocked on every single person's door. And I think it says something about the political climate in the UK that. People, lots of people were unsure who they were going to vote for. Um, lots of people had previously voted for UKIP, for example, and then 
we've left, you know, we've left the European Union and the UKIP kind of became redundant as a party because their main aim to leave, make us leave Europe was, <laughs> was successful. And so people were looking for other alternatives. And also lots of people were angry and confused, you know, previously which was conservative and had been negatively affected by their policies. So there was a lot of people who were unsure. And in a normal general election campaign, you would just, you wouldn't really knock on those people's doors because last year they told you they were conservative. But this time we knocked on those people's doors and had conversations. And I think it, it's, it clearly had a massive impact because it allowed people to um, raise their concerns with people and to hear about their party policy from another person who was a neighbour or, you know, uh, you know, from other people from a, with a personal connection and hear about their, why they were going to vote Labour. And it definitely had an impact. Um, and it shows, like, you know, what a mass, well, it's not just, you can't just buy an election. You know, even though we didn't win, the Tories had a really difficult time and they really struggled and they've, they've come out of it looking really bad and they, they put hundreds of thousands of pounds, millions of pounds um, into kind of like online advertising, for example, and have no recognition for what a kind of ground operation can do. And I think we showed that a ground operation and hundreds of activists um, can have a real impact in elections. And I think that's something that pe- lots of people have denied for quite a long time. So it is quite a change in, in British politics as well, which is really exciting. Yeah. And, and spe- speaking of change and, um, and all that, what, what, what are some of your, and maybe we'll, you know, sort of wrap, wrap things up on this. Um, what, what are your plans for the, for the future? What are the priorities of the organization? Uh, I mean, the political climate is very, very unsettled still. Um, yeah. everyone's assuming there, there will be a, another election, um, before the full term of this government, but what what are some of the main priorities and demands of, of your membership, not just in the short term, looking forward to another election, um, but also more more in the long, more in the long term. Mm. Yeah. Well, for the time being, I think we're going to really stay on an election footing because there is there is definitely a feeling that we could have another election in six months to a year, and we want to be ready. We have a whole new set of places which are now considered marginal that we never would have dreamt being marginals before because they've normally been safe seats so we have like a whole different political context to play with which is really exciting but also a lot of work so you know we've got loads of new tools both like digital tools that we we want to try out and get our activists using we have a whole training network that we uh, are launching in the next couple of months which will be training people to deliver their own trainings in their local areas and we hope to be able to train thousands more people than we did during the general election campaign um, and then going forward, you know, our real aim is to get a Labour government and hopefully it's going to happen a lot sooner than everyone thought. <laughs> um, and so we will be pushing that forward, but we also have a lot, a lot of work to do to, uh, to make the Labour Party the best party that it can be, um, you know, working to ensure that it's the representative and the, and the candidates that are chosen next time are representative um, of the membership and... Um, that we are listening to our members about what went well this time and and that, you know, we also have lots of other things going on in the country um, around council selections. So there's a long-term strategy of, of, of getting good people into positions of power in the country, um, as well as hopefully winning the general election in the next year, fingers crossed. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and introducing lots of new ways of campaigning that haven't been tried out before. Is there a second track to the, you know, there's the getting good people elected, 
and then you know getting good ideas out there and building um, mass politics like what's the kind of relationship between those two because sometimes you know sometimes the first doesn't necessarily guarantee the second yeah so I mean it's important that um, the Labour Party is uh, very democratic so we actually get members voices heard as well as electing good representatives um, and that ranges from having good a very good like a good culture within the party where meetings are very open and inclusive and um, new people are being elected in their local parties to represent uh, their local areas in in their constituencies or in their regions or um, at you know on the national policy forum or in different places along the party basically member representation throughout the party structures is, is really important um, so that we don't not only represent people but you know the, the party the party machine and all the activity going on behind the scenes is, is getting member input and um, and our activists who are on the ground are getting their input into the party so that's part of our agenda moving forward. That was Beth Foster Og of Momentum and next up my conversation with author and academic Nick Srnicek. <laughs> Have you recovered from the shock, the euphoria, all the other emotions of uh, of June the 8th of the general election? Uh, I think not actually. Uh, so I know the the night of the election I had a, a flight the next day at noon uh, and I was sort of planning to just you know watch the exit polls at 10 uh, sort of have my disappointment at home and then, you know, go to bed for in time for my flight. Uh, and then, of course, the exit polls came out and it was it was a massive shock even for those of us who believed it could happen. Uh, so we ended up going out and partying the entire night and drinking till five in the morning, celebrating with, you know, a bunch of friends. Uh, and I don't really think that that euphoria has actually died off since then. Um, it sobered up a bit, but it hasn't actually died off. Uh, and I think that's one of the big changes is just that there is this real sense that actually everything that the left has been saying is possible uh, is actually now happening and has been proven right. And I think that sort of newfound confidence uh, in the the analysis of the left and the sort of program of the left, uh, I think, is really carrying things on. It's sort of a weird thing in the UK here where you've got now got um, just spontaneously people across the entire country who are in clubs or at concerts or at, you know, football events or anything. And they'll suddenly start erupting into this chant of, Oh, Jeremy Corbyn. And it's just become this like really popular thing. Yeah. Um, I, I heard that it was like up and down Glastonbury. Yeah. It's up and down Glastonbury. Uh, Corbyn is uh, introducing run the jewels there. And he's become one of the big, the big, like, you know, gotta see shows at Glastonbury. Uh, it's just it's it's really striking how much sort of popular valence this idea has uh, the sort of program and, and um, the person of Jeremy Corbyn as well. I'll, I'll start off with that. How how important do you think that the economic message in that part of the program? I mean, that was a large chunk of the program. How how important do you think that that was to this to both the result and and like you say this sort of increased uh, confidence? Yeah, I think it was. Um, a really important part of the manifesto and of the the campaign as a whole. Uh, and I think one of the best ways to sort of see the importance is to look at the past few elections here in the UK. Uh, so we had the 2015 general election, and the core argument at that point was all around austerity. Uh, it was still this idea that the Tories were having to clean up Labour's mess from 2007, 2008, 
which was complete nonsense as a narrative, but it, it functioned, you know, to sort of set the tone and the framing for uh, how the election was carried out. And so, of course, if austerity and, you know, cutting government services is the sort of dominant idea of what needs to be done, uh, the Tories were always in a very good position to win that election. Now, with 2016, we had the, the election or the referendum to, uh, to leave the EU. And throughout that entire uh, campaign, immigration was the dominant sort of narrative. Uh, it was, you know, foreigners coming in, taking jobs, taking benefits somehow at the same time. Uh, this was, again, another right-wing narrative that just dominated the entire campaign. And it wasn't really any surprise then that UKIP would actually do very, very well. Uh, the sort of UKIP-leaning voters would do very, very well during that election. Uh, and then 2017 is completely different. So immigration was completely sidelined as an issue. It basically never got raised. Uh, Paul Nuttall from UKIP, the, the, the former leader of UKIP, tried to raise it as an issue a few times, but it just never gained traction. Uh, austerity was never raised. Uh, it was never this idea that, you know, we have to cut government spending. We have to, you know, live within our own means. The closest thing that I ever got was uh, some mentions by the Tories of a so-called magic money tree that Labour was using. And it just never really took hold either. Nobody really believed in it. Uh, and Labour's message effectively that they were going to tax the rich and give to the rest. Uh, was the one that ended up winning out uh, as the dominant narrative. So I think that the economic message was really crucial to getting people to believe that actually something quite nice for their lives was was possible. Um, now, that being said, I think there's still rooms for uh, room for improvement here. And one particular thing wasn't really mentioned um, was the sort of 40 years of failure that we've had since the 1970s. And this is, I think, a big part of why people headed towards UKIP was that they've seen 40 years of manufacturing leaving their cities, of jobs leaving their cities, of wages stagnating, uh, the NHS being undercut uh, and underfunded. And, you know, that, that matches up quite nicely, actually, with the story that the EU is the problem. Now, I think there's another leftist story we can tell, which is precisely that it's neoliberalism and the rise of this free market fundamentalism that has really been the issue over the past 40 years. So I think there's there's room to really be pushing that narrative and start bringing back a lot more UKIP voters as well. How would that happen or how how does that vision work in the framework of sort of the existing program? Like, to, you know, where do you think the existing program starts to move in that direction? What do you think are the sort of important planks that that do that? Um, and where do you see some some of the weaknesses in that in that regard sort of and and, and where is the space to sort of move yeah uh, i think on a sort of concrete policy level there's uh plenty of good stuff in the manifesto but i think it's also worth noting that um it's not a super leftist manifesto in many ways uh particularly in sort of you know, comparing it to other European countries or comparing it even historically to previous labor manifestos is not a hugely left manifesto, but it does have a lot of good, you know, basic social democratic offers in it. Uh, it offers a much higher minimum wage. Uh, it ends some of the most uh, exploitative relationships within work. So things like zero hours contracts are going to be banned uh, in the manifesto. Uh, and it also offers things like more investment in public services, so the NHS, education, all these sorts of things. And I think there's a few key things, though, that sort of gesture towards something um, that we haven't seen for a long time, 
which is uh, universalism. And I think this is a really important part because universalism has sort of been given up on since the neoliberal era. Uh, and the idea is that, you know, we, we provide government services and benefits to people, but we do so in this really, you know, cost effectiveness is our sort of, you know, primary thing we're looking for. So we only do it for those who really need it. Uh, and it'd be, you know, targeted towards, you know, those people in, in, in poverty and things like that. And that's sort of the neoliberal provision of welfare. But I think what was on offer in the manifesto, the labor manifesto, uh, was a much more universalist vision of it all. So there was universal free school meals. There was universal free tuition. Uh, a very small thing, which actually caused a lot of ruckus, was universal free parking in hospitals. And all of these things. like The coming of socialism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like It's such a minor, minor thing. But this caused a massive ruckus uh, in the media and the commentariat as though like this was just a massive waste of money. Like, why would you do this? We should be, you know, charging these people and using our money for more cost effective things. Well, I think that and, and the sort of neoliberal aspect is that, you know, people are only going to game this and all the people who live <laughs> next to hospitals, you're now just giving them free parking. Like as if, you know, as if people were just these yeah. perfect sort of cost benefit analysis machines and we're just out to you know yeah exactly uh you know the the image of the citizenry that's involved there is, is entirely neoliberal uh and the entire provision of it is just like we need to save money um whereas of course you know this principle of universalism is a basic social democratic thing that we haven't seen for a long time and i think that's really important to bring back and i think that's one of the one of the key contributions of the manifesto even if it's never explicitly spelt out implicit within a lot of its policies are this, this sort of aspect. Uh, and then finally, the second aspect I think is really important uh, is this reinvocation of nationalization and, and public ownership and worker ownership more generally uh, that actually, you know, the, the private sector isn't the only thing that can own things. And actually, uh, the private sector does a pretty terrible job in a lot of cases. So, the support for co-ops, the arguments for nationalizing railways, uh, renationalizing Royal Mail, uh, the sort of quasi-nationalization of the energy industry, all of this stuff is something we haven't heard for a long time in the UK as well. And I think that's really important too. What would be the next step? What's the sort of more transformative demand seeing as, you know, you've you've written a book on this, um, so I figure I can push push this a little bit, is, you know, how do you see those moving forward? Like, how do you see those becoming sort of transformative demands, even just to get out of neoliberalism, but in a more explicit way? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I do think the manifesto is very much a, a post-neoliberal sort of manifesto. Um, it's also, it's not a return to traditional social democracy either. Uh, I think there's much more emphasis on democracy in it. Uh, much more emphasis on not just public ownership, but public control as well. Uh, so I think that all these things suggest that it is, to begin with, a sort of 21st century social democracy. It's the beginnings of something like that. And I think it still needs to be fleshed out in a number of areas, but I think it, it's, it's sort of gesturing towards that. Uh, and I, I think the key thing is that it has broken the past 40 years of discourse uh, around privatization, around free markets, around austerity, around government provision of services and goods. 
Uh, and that narrative has been definitively broken here by this, you know, the manifesto and the campaign and the entire, um, the entire sort of uh, movement behind it. So I think that's, that's more um, what's important than just necessarily the, the policies that are invoked by the manifesto. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. And it's, and, and that's, what's been most conspicuous about. And I think that's where, as you said, like that's where the reactions came from and even to nominally small things mm-hmm. um, to switch tracks a little bit. What, what do you think will be some of the barriers to implementing this program were it to be implemented? The people who are against it are clearly awake to it as well. How do you see, how do you see that dynamic sort of this kind of program in today's, in today's UK and the political economic climate and, and how would, how would opponents react? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's there's some aspects which are quite unique to the UK, uh, which are going to be major challenges. And the first one, of course, is Brexit. Uh, Brexit has thrown a lot of things into uncertainty. And so there's this weird sort of sense in which the left case for Brexit um, was always fairly good. But in an environment where a vote for Brexit was a vote for xenophobia and racism, a lot of people on the left turned away from uh, the argument to leave uh, because it just seemed to be supporting a sort of UKIP narrative and the left narrative never really took hold. But there's a weird sense in which now that Brexit has actually you know, been voted for, we triggered Article 50 and it's now going to happen, there's a sense in which we're all left Brexiteers. And I think this is a sort of weird thing where... Um, we're now starting to, you know, remind ourselves of the ways in which uh, the EU is, a, you know, intrinsically a neoliberal institution and sort of the ways in which we can now take advantage of being outside of it. Uh, so things like, you know, nationalizing a lot of this stuff is not possible under EU rules. Uh, so these sorts of things are really important. And I think that Brexit offers as much of an opportunity as it does uh, a challenge. Uh the, the sort of push to renegotiate trade deals is also going to be quite important. Uh, we need to be thinking about how do we, you know, avoid sort of pure protectionism, but at the same time avoid these massively overreaching trade deals, which attempt to give, you know, global capital basically say over democracy. So I think there's a, a chance to be able to sort of weave a new path there, which could be um, taken advantage of by uh, a future Labour government. Now, the other challenge that the UK faces is, of course, its dependency on finance. So the financial sector is a huge, huge aspect of the economy. Um, I forget what the exact figure is in terms of GDP, but it's you know a big part of it. Uh, services are something like 70% of GDP, so the whole thing is quite dependent on it. Um, and not just in terms of GDP, but also in terms of tax revenues. So the estimates are that finance provides uh, over £60 billion pounds in uh, tax revenues annually. So a huge amount of money that comes in from the financial sector. And again, this ties in with Brexit because it's unclear exactly what is gonna happen to the financial sector with Brexit losing the UK's easy access to to European capital. Um, so that's sort of all up in the air. Now, I think the what the left should be aiming for is a significant rebalancing away from finance uh, this means, you know, 
trying to tone down and control finance to a certain degree, but also having, you know, in place the stuff that can replace it in terms of just, you know, economic growth and tax revenues and, you know, providing for the living standards uh, as we transition to something better. So this is a really big challenge. I think it's a challenge for any government, but it's particularly a challenge for a left government, which is not necessarily, um, you know, sort of tied down to um, keeping the financial sector. Now, the other uh, sort of major challenge, the final one, um, is just that we can imagine a sort of situation where labor gets in power, it goes to implement its manifesto, and there's a number of sort of policies that global capitalism could be quite happy with. Um, it probably wouldn't mind, actually, the higher wages. It would be an incentive to uh, automate more, to increase productivity, uh, more investment Just provide in education. Yeah, exactly. Uh, more investment in education is a good thing. But then you've also got things like a financial transactions tax. You've got uh, all these uh, ideas of nationalizing uh, various industries. And you can see that global capitalism is not going to be happy with this. And over the past 40 years, we've seen numerous cases where a left government has come into power, has tried to implement some sort of left program, uh, and has been knocked back down quite thoroughly by the powers of global capital. Uh, so Mitterrand in France is the, you know, one of the classic examples. Uh, Syriza is another good example. Uh, Sweden as well. So I think what we need to do in the UK here is to look at these historical incidents and see exactly what happened, why they failed, and how we can actually think about um, warding off these sorts of issues. I do think there's solutions to them. So we can think about you know, capital controls for the 21st century. Uh, we can socialize finance to some degree so we can provide for uh, you know, lines of investment and lines of finance for people that need it and small businesses that need it, even if there is capital flight and global finance doesn't want to invest. Uh, that's no reason that we can't, you know, domestically invest in these things. Uh, and then we also, of course, need to have targeted and planned investment in things that are going to support uh, a growing economy as we transition to something else. So it could be based upon high-tech industries. It could be you know, green energy industries, all these sorts of things. But I think that's the another major challenge is, you know, how do we plan for these inevitable attacks and how do we um, learn from history? What's your sense of how the situation will develop now? I mean, I think th those are all huge challenges and, and we can see them if labor came into government. Uh, I mean, we just have a couple minutes left, but, you know, in, in terms of sort of speculative politics or your sense of things on the ground, like, where does it look like it's going? It looks like it really does look like Jeremy Corbyn is, you know, every day even less prime minister in waiting than, than <laughs> really, you know, knocking on the door um, of number 10 Downing Street. What's, where's your, what's your sense of where the situation is going? Yeah, there's, uh, there's been this meme going around Twitter recently the past few days of uh, basically just saying Jeremy Corbyn is the PM, uh, which has really annoyed a lot of right-wingers. Uh, and they just don't sort of get that, like, actually, you don't mean it literally, but, you know, it is a good joke. Um, but, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, he's been at the front of the Grenfell disaster. He's been at the front of the attack in Finsbury. Uh, he's been the one who's been out there talking to people, getting a sense for what is going on. And he, he very much seems prime ministerial already, much more so than May, who has basically disappeared. Now, right now, it's quite up in the air. Uh, Theresa May is trying to get a deal done with the DUP uh, and trying to get some sort of 
you know, functioning government going, but that still isn't clear exactly what's going to happen. What is clear is that she's uh, dead in the water. Uh, everybody knows this. She knows it. The Tory party knows it. Everybody uh, recognizes it. So one major question is who's going to be the next um, leader of the Tory party? Now, the, the sort of word on the street is that David Davies, uh, the current Brexit secretary, is basically a front runner for the leadership. Um, he seems to be the only one who hasn't doesn't have major, major baggage uh, and is at least well-liked enough that he could rise to leadership. But he's um, a hard Brexiteer. He was very much in favor of the Leave campaign. Uh, but he's also much more, in a way, centrist than May. Uh, so it's sort of an interesting hypothesis about where the Tory party might go uh, if he comes into power. Um, they may sort of return to the David Cameron sort of modernizing the Conservative Party approach which uh, I think it's, I don't think it'll work against labor anymore. I think labor has significantly changed the narrative and the framing of politics today to a sufficient degree that David Cameron just doesn't seem sufficient either. So I don't think he's that much of a threat uh, in terms of labor's electoral chances. And then, of course, the question is, you know, is there going to be a new election uh, called anytime soon? Uh, and it's, again, difficult to say. So there's a recent piece of legislation, uh, the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, which makes it quite difficult actually to call an early election. So the chances of this happening are um, relatively small, but it's not impossible, uh, particularly if you know Theresa May keeps dragging the Tory party down. You can sort of imagine them forcing her out, uh, putting in some sort of interim leader. Uh, and then basically Corbyn has uh, a good mandate to call for a new election um, to say that, you know, we didn't vote for this new leader. Uh, let the people decide who should be the, the prime minister. And basically, this is the way Labour is acting right now. Corbyn is on permanent campaigning mode. Uh, he's been traveling around the country, uh, particularly focusing on new marginals that Labour hopes to win. Uh, Momentum is doing the same thing. Uh, and Momentum was a huge, huge part of the, the election uh, successes and they're continuing their campaigning, continuing their work, and looking to target all these new uh, marginal seats as well. So basically, everybody in Labour, at least, is still planning for an election within the next year. That was Nick Snitek, and that's it for this week. Talk to you again soon.